I don't know what you feel about the prosperity gospel, the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, but I'll tell you what I feel about it. Hatred. It is not the gospel. And it's being exported from this country to Africa and Asia, selling a bill of goods to the poorest of the poor. Believe this message. Your pigs won't die. Your wife won't have miscarriages. You have rings on your fingers and coats on your back. That's coming out of America. The people that ought to be giving our money and our time and our lives, instead selling them a bunch of crap called gospel. And here's the reason it is so horrible. When was the last time that any American, African, Asian, ever said Jesus is all satisfying because you drove a BMW. Never. They'll say, Jesus did do that? Yeah. Well, I'll take Jesus. That's idolatry. That's not the gospel. That's elevating gifts above giver. I'll tell you what makes Jesus look beautiful is when you smash your car and your little girl goes flying through the windshield and lands like dead on the street and you say through the deepest possible pain God is enough God is enough he is good he will take care of us he will satisfy us he will get us through this he is our treasure whom have I in heaven but you and on earth there's nothing that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart and my little girl may fail, but you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That makes God look good. As God, not as giver of cars or safety or health. Oh, how I pray that America would be purged of the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel and that the Christian church would be marked by suffering for Christ. God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in Him in the midst of loss, not frustration. Well, you'll be happy to know that we're not going to talk about TV preachers today who promise riches if you will only name it and claim it. Uh, Several weeks ago, we started kind of an expanded uh, series on the Beatitudes and, uh, and the importance of them to the believer today. Uh, and today, we're going to go into the first of the Beatitudes found in Matthew 5.3. The reason I showed you this little clip here was because John Piper succinctly and contrast the prosperity gospel with the gospel of poverty. Let's start with the word blessed. It's the Greek makarioi, and that's an exceptional word used in an exceptional way to convey an exceptional message. It's used by a number of authors. Homer used it to describe a wealthy man. 
Uh, Herodotus used it to describe a, an oasis in a desert. Uh, Plato used it to describe one who prospers. And Hesiod spoke of the Greek gods as being blessed in themselves, unaffected by the weakness, poverty, and death of this world. It seems to designate a state or condition unaffected by outside forces. In the word of God, blessed is the state of those whose heart is indwelt by God and who therefore walk with him day by day. Many of you, I'm sure, read the Psalms. And there we see that the blessed are those whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit. The blessed is one who has made the Lord his trust, has not turned to the proud nor to those who lapsed into falsehood. It's he whom you, God, choose and bring near to you to dwell in your courts, whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord, who observe his testimonies, who seek him with all their heart, who fear the Lord, who walk in his ways. Paul bridges the Old with the New Testament when he says in Romans 4, just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. In Galatians 3, he says, So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. In Revelation 14, John heard a voice from heaven saying, Write! Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow with them. In chapter 19, he said, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. In chapter 20, Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. That's interesting to note. In the Greek text, I'm, I'm informed, I'm not a Greek scholar, but in the Greek text, after the word blessed, the words are or shall be do not appear. Rather, the sense is that we are blessed now, and we will be forever blessed. It doesn't come from as a reward for our works. It doesn't come as a result of our personal material possessions or our social prestige. We realize this blessing only by humbly trusting in Jesus. Even more astonishing is that this Greek word for blessing is used to describe the very nature and character of God and his Son in the Psalms and in Paul's epistles. Second Peter uh, one indicates that believers in the Lord are partakers of the divine nature. Think of that. This character of blessedness would seem to not apply to all pew sitters, but only to the character of the regenerated true believer of disciples of Christ. So therefore, in summary, 
the quality of blessedness we find in the Beatitudes were those qualities exemplified by Christ on earth and that he wants repeated in each of us as he fills us with himself. <clears throat> Very well-known passage out of John 15 says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you and I can do nothing. <clears throat> so in Matthew 5.3, Jesus describes the beggarly poor in spirit as blessed. And some would characterize this as joyful, blissful, rich, to the highest degree and in the most important sense. And, and that's true. Another way to put it is simply that the blessed are approved by God and there is no higher earthly, earthly reward. Now, there are some misconceptions about this passage. Some equate physical poverty with being poor in spirit. Um, there really is no special virtue in being poor, and there really is no great sinfulness in being rich. There are plenty of examples in Scripture. You, you hear of Nicodemus, you hear of Joseph of Arimathea. Uh, Philemon evidently had a servant. He, he must have been rich. Uh, and the centurion in Luke 7, who had the greatest faith in all of Israel, all of whom apparently were rich. And we've got to face reality that it's often rich Christians who finance much of our work. Uh, one example uh, is a man named R.G. Letourneau. Some of you have heard of him. Some of you went to school at his college. Uh, and R.G. was a Christian businessman who got into construction, and he invented the powerful earth-moving machines, became tremendously wealthy in his day. But R.G. Letourneau understood that it was all God's. And so he realized that he didn't have such great needs, so he tithed to himself, and he gave the 90% to God. Now, just as an aside here, please don't confuse the voluntary generosity of Mr. Letourneau with an argument for a progressive income tax, okay? What, we're, what many states like you know, the bankrupt states of New York and California are finding is that they, as they tax and tax and tax to, to pay for their ever-increasing ever spending, they are sending their tax and their employment base to other states, like Texas and, and Florida. They are literally killing the goose that lays the golden egg. But I digress. Um, are there greedy, selfish wealthy? Of course there are. But while it's often easier for a poor person to be saved because of their abject poverty and their, their great need for God, uh, it is certain that there will be rich in heaven and there will be poor in the depths of hell forever. 
Proverbs actually talks a lot about poverty and wealth, and, some, and oftentimes refers to, the, to some poor as those who are sluggardly or foolish, not really pious at all. In fact, in Proverbs, uh, those who are prosperous are often those who have worked hard and wisely. Proverbs 30 gives us a real balance. It says, Do not give me poverty or riches. Feed me with my allotted bread, lest I become satisfied and act deceptively, and say, Well, who is the Lord? Or lest I become poor, and I steal and harm in the name of God. So the, the text tells us that both poverty and wealth have their Achilles heels. Uh, Paul warns that the, the rich must not trust in their uncertainty of riches in 1 Timothy 6. But the poor must be careful not to set aside God's justice and righteousness and try to steal to fix their problem. Uh, we are to be content with whatever state we find ourselves. Max Lucado says this concerning the Sermon on the Mount. He said, it's not the big bucks that get the rich into trouble. It's their big heads. And that's exactly the point. It's not money. It's the love of money that creates the problems, the, inter, the independence and the, uh, the self-centeredness that flows from wealth. Another misconception about being poor in spirit that sometimes is found within the church is that uh, some believe a false modesty or self-abasement are the fulfillment of, being, of having that quality. Uh, Jesus neither condemned nor condoned uh, self-deprivation. In fact, he contrasted his ministry and that of his disciples with those of John the Baptist. And he said, For John came eating, neither eating nor drinking, and they said, he has a devil. The son of man, in other words, I come both eating and drinking, and they say, behold, a man gluttonous and a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners. But wisdom is justified of her children. There's another aspect of being poor in spirit, and that is that some people say, well, kind of work at being humble, and they, in fact, they can be, be humble and proud of it. Well, humility is the most fleeting of virtues. Once you are self-assured of acquisition, it's gone. There's also an element, uh, I think, in some foreign countries, but maybe even here, where we're talking about humility being something uh, that where people mentally flagellate, you know, whip themselves. And it's kind of a poor me, defeatist attitude. Uh, but the believer declares victory in Christ. Paul said, with God for us, who can stand against us? And I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Christ's gospel is not wimpy. So, let's ask ourselves a question. What does Jesus mean here by the word poor? The Greek word is patokos. And that's used for poor in this text. And it comes from the word ptoso, which means shrinking or cringing or cowering. It describes a person who slinks about, crouches, begging for alms. 
It's actually used in Luke 16 to describe the beggar Lazarus, who was laid at his gate covered in sores, longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Kind of descriptive. More interestingly, it's used in 2 Corinthians 8 to contrast the holy position of the Son of God at the hand of his Father. Contrast with the poverty of Christ in the flesh. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. I forgot to ask, if anybody wants a study sheet and didn't get one, would you raise your hand? I think some young men have them back there. Anybody else? There's one up here. Okay, good. Most everybody got one if they wanted one. Uh, Ptosis is actually a medical term which indicates a drooping of a bodily organ, usually the eyelid. Okay? And I think it's kind of ironic or perhaps intentional, that it is a sign of fear or respect or honor or submission to bow your head and to close your eyes in the presence of another. In fact, uh, Psalm 123 says, Behold, the eyes of the servant look to the hand of their master, and the eyes of a maid to the hand of her mistress. So our eyes look to the Lord until he's gracious to us. We understand what we deserve. Patokos type poor is contrasted with the Greek word panasis. Another word for poor used in scripture. And it's used to describe the poor who are poor enough that they have to work hard for a living. The difference is the Patokos poor can't work. They have to beg. So why did the Holy Spirit use this particular word to describe the, those that, that he wanted to here? Well, Spiros Zodiades, who's a Greek scholar, said this. It was to convey his diagnosis of man. Man is empty, poor, helpless. He cannot work out his own salvation. He is patokos, not panesis. He needs mercy from outside himself. And this is the condition of fallen man. No one from his own level can help him. Help must come from someone who is superior, from above, from God. This help comes as Christ fills us with himself, his salvation and his word. Now, the world looks at Matthew 5.3 and scratches its collective head and said, isn't poverty and pain to be eliminated? I mean, isn't there a government program for that? Well, to them, Jesus is talking nonsense, and we are literally fools for Christ to believe such a paradox. The resolution comes, as we said, when we are filled with Christ by being empty of our self and our pride that is part of the human spirit. Believers are blessed when we understand our complete emptiness without him and confess our total dependence on him. 
But with him, we can face trials, temptations, poverty, pain, and even death without fear or anxiety. Theologically, I understand this is called the depravity of man. Man has nothing to offer God that will equal, earn, or merit his righteousness. Paul confirms this bad news in Romans 3. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. And when we recognize our spiritual poverty, there is nothing there to protect or to preserve. It's gone. And indeed, to be more accurate, it's really a huge debt with no resources to repay. This is the kind and extent of our poverty. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, for this verse to make sense, you've got to take it as a whole. The poor are not blessed. It is the poverty of spirit, the inner man, that is blessed. It is that spirit that accepts my own inadequacy in deep submission rather than to rebel against it. God loves a broken spirit and a contrite heart. This poverty of spirit is the first mark of true discipleship. It is the prerequisite to the other Beatitudes. Spiritual beggars are those who have abandoned pride and self-sufficiency and who rely totally on God. And they are now in a position to assume the mournful, meek, hungry, merciful, pure, and peaceful dispositions of the other Beatitudes. The poor in spirit don't resist, uh, don't insist on their own way. They don't demand their own rights. They don't grasp for all that's theirs and forget about everybody else. They're not fixated on their profit or their gain, but rather on God's purposes, God's goal. In other words, God's best. Now, our hands have to be empty for him to fill them. There's got to be nothing there. This is not something that we do. We don't even empty ourselves. We don't make ourselves poor. It is evidence of God's work in us when we see ourselves for who we really are. We have nothing to bring to him. We have nothing to lay claim to him. We have nothing to cause God to act graciously on our behalf. It's all his mercy. It's all his grace. How does God make this happen in us? I think if we went around the room, just about everybody here would have a story about how God at one time or another pulled the rug out from underneath him and helped them understand that we're utterly dependent upon him. He does it through his word. He does it through his spirit. 
Sometimes he does it through tragedy or crisis or sickness or economic loss or an earthquake or, or some sin that becomes glaringly apparent. It happens for me when I'm harsh with my wife who sacrifices daily for myself and for my children. It happens to me when my children are unloving and I reprove them out of anger in a most unloving way. Whatever it is, God uses these things to bring us to him empty-handed. little interlude here. Somewhere, right now, on a street corner probably near here, there's a band of folk maybe singing hymns and carrying signs that are not so delicately worded, saying that God is hate. In fact, he hates everybody except them. You know, I've even seen signs that say God hates the Marines. Can you, have you ever heard anything so ridiculous as that? Now, why would I make a statement like that? Well, I have authority, and my authority is a hymn. It's the Marine Corps hymn. Listen to this, Kevin and Aaron. Which ends with these hallowed words. If the Army or the Navy ever looks on heaven's scenes, they will find the streets are guarded by United States Marines. <laughs> Wilson, Chris and Billy D, can I get an oorah for that? <laughs> yeah. Well, just a second here. You know, we believe that God is love, and He is. But, but God also hates And he tells us to hate. Proverbs 8, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverted mouth. I, God, hate. Now, the other hand, James tells us, that if we humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord, He will lift us up. I've listed some, uh, some passages there which give examples out of Scripture of men who have been poor in spirit. I'd like to just mention a few. There's a couple of negative examples. Nebuchadnezzar built this great empire. Had a lot to be proud of. Uh, so much so that he said... The king spoke and said, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty? While the word was in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven saying, O king Nebuchadnezzar, to thee it is spoken, your kingdom is departed from you. And he spent a lengthy time wandering around the wilderness as an animal. After that, before he repented and recognized the Lord God. Also, 
God did not immediately punish King Herod when he slaughtered babies and even the apostle James. But when he had a problem and he gave a speech to the citizens of Tyre and Sidon, the people started crying out, the voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and died. I think one of, my, I think one of the, the best contrasts is in Luke 18. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying there to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And I tell you, this latter man went to his house justified rather than the first. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. This past week, I was returning from Concordia on, the, I think it's Highway 81, I think, and I passed by a sign for Minneapolis, Kansas. And I saw there, it said, the home of George Washington Carver. And it reminded me, Carver was, uh, as an infant, taken from his slave parents, I think in Missouri, and he ended up in Kansas and lived a couple of places here. In fact, anybody here ever heard of or taken courses from Highland College? Okay, up in the northeast of the state. Well, Highland has the distinct dishonor of turning down an application for admission from George Washington Carver. Because he went on to, I think it was, go to school in Iowa and then ended up at the Tuskegee Institute and develop hundreds of uses for the peanut. Became quite famous. And... George Washington Carver happened to be a very humble man. He said, When I was young, I said to God, God, tell me the mystery of the universe. God answered, That knowledge is reserved for me alone. So I said, God, tell me the mystery of the peanut. Then God said, Well, George, that's more nearly your size. And he told me. You see... George Carver was exalted to this day because of his humility. Well, what's the great reward for being poor in spirit? Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I don't pretend to understand all this. I'm just going to say that when we understand we have nothing to give and we have become spiritual beggars and we stoop before God with empty hands and empty hearts, We have the kingdom. It is ours. We own it now, gift-wise, and we'll enjoy it in the future because he looks down on our emptiness in his infinite love and mercifully allows us to partake. In Matthew 18, it says, Verily I say to you, except you be converted and become as little children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. 
In James 4, he tells us, he gives more grace. Wherefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. In a few moments, we're all going to partake, or you have the opportunity to partake of the Lord's table, communion. And we should all be considering that we are here today recognizing that we're all sinners. And but for what he did, not what we did, because we can do nothing, but for what he did, we will be able to spend an eternity with other sinners because of the humility, the sacrifice, and the blood of Christ. What I'd ask you to do is consider whatever it is that causes you to look upward when we're taking the, the, the Lord's table. But remember this verse in, out of Philippians 2. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look on your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Father in heaven, you have given us so much. You have given us material wealth. You have given us relationships that we treasure. You have given us the breath that we draw. It all comes from you, Lord. Without you, we would be nothing. Lord, help us to understand that we are totally empty. And you call us, Lord. You call us. And those that answer out of that empty heart, knowing we can do nothing to earn it, are the true poor in spirit. Father, please continue to cleanse us of our selfish desires, of our pride and arrogance. Help us to be the kind of servants that, in, that encourage others, draw others, point others to you. Lord, we ask all these things in the precious and holy name of Jesus. Amen.